we're going to talk about attitude descriptions. Yeah, it's wild. Welcome to London Philosophy Talk. I'm Florian Steinberger of the Philosophy Department at Birkbeck College, University of London, and I'm also Director of the Philosophy Program at University of London Worldwide. Hello, thank you for joining me again at London Philosophy Talk. A Happy New Year to everybody. I apologize for not having posted an episode for quite some time. I don't usually do New Year's resolutions, but if I do this year, it will be to post episodes in more regular intervals. For now, though, I'm very pleased to introduce my colleague, Alex Grzynkowski. He works in the philosophy of mind, the philosophy of language, metaphysics, and epistemology. He does it all. He came on the podcast to say it all. More specifically, we're situating ourselves in the philosophy of language. We're going to deal with issues surrounding the modern classic of a paper, A Puzzle About Belief by Saul Kripke. More specifically, we're going to talk about reference and attitude ascriptions. If you think that sounds boring, well, you're wrong. If it sounds unfamiliar, then don't worry. We're going to introduce the topic gently. I want to thank those of you very, very much who left reviews, very generous, kind reviews on iTunes. If you too like the podcast, are enjoying it, please do take the time briefly to leave a review on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. And please continue listening and subscribing. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right. Um, here, l- let me say perhaps just two things very, very generally about language and why language might be, uh, might be deserving of philosophical reflection. And if you think about it, it is just this really miraculous thing that I'm sitting here and I have these funny thoughts in my mind and I'm able to produce these sound waves, which somehow encode the thoughts that I have. And I produce these syntactically ordered sounds, which you are in turn able to receive and to decode, and that provokes certain thoughts uh, in, in your mind. And so there's that already is pretty stunning. So this is sort of the mind to language kind of thing. But then also, both our thoughts and language are about stuff. They are about the world, largely speaking. We could speak about all sorts of things that are removed from us, rather distanced from us in time and place. And uh, I can convey that kind of information for you. So also language is, it has this interesting relation to the world. We can talk about all sorts of things in a medium that doesn't have any kind of intrinsic resemblance to the thing that to things that we talk about. Right? If I talk to you about um, I don't know, the mating behavior of cuttlefish or something, then the sounds that I produce or the words that I might write down on a piece of paper bear no particular similarity to cuttlefish or whatever they might do when they're trying to mate. Probably it doesn't sound like it. Um, probably not. So I guess it's it's mainly, or perhaps our starting point at least, is, is mainly the second feature of language, the relationship between language and stuff in the world that we care to talk about that uh, that we should take as our starting point. But why don't I shut up and, and you set the scene a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, maybe maybe one thing one, to just to jump in there. I mean, I agree with you that the um, that it is a pretty there, there are lots of miraculous little features here. I mean, one thing is just in terms of even an alphabet or letters, we've got 26 little scribbles. And by sticking those little scribbles together, just about anything anybody's ever thought or ever will think you can you can capture with those little squiggles. That is that is pretty amazing. 
Um, there might be a few counterexamples, but that, that's those a pretty... Phoenicians. Yeah, it's a pretty fa- fantastic feat that those Phoenicians sorted out for us. But about the aboutness, yeah, I mean, I think that it is, it, it's a striking thing. Again, maybe, maybe there's some other examples too, but uh, they're not they're not immediately forthcoming. I can I can put my hand on a cup or I can reach out and grab the end of the chair, uh, but I can't get my hands on the number seven and I can't get my hands on and probably wouldn't want to Kim Jong-un. He's too far away. But I can think about those things. I can think about numbers. I can think about things that don't exist. I can think about things that are far away. Um, so even though we can do this mundane thing, seemingly mundane thing of talking about and thinking about the stuff that's around us, uh, we've got this, this ability to kind of reach out and enter into relations with all kinds of things that that you don't enter into relations in the usual kind of causal grabbing, punching, kicking kind of way. And I think, yeah, that is a fascinating, fascinating feature. Uh, and I think that is the feature that's kind of resting at, at the heart, or at least one of the things that is, that's at the heart of, of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. And so what about proper names? So you'll redirect me if I'm if, if, if you wanted to set the scene differently. But so what about proper names and all of that? So the sorts of linguistic expressions that we use to talk about specific things where things is very broadly understood. So things like the name Serena Williams that designates that famous tennis player or the name, I don't know, Simon Bolivar, uh, or the name London of the town London, all those are proper names are the sorts of expressions we use to designate particular things in the world, as opposed to, for example, general terms like cat. Why, why did they in particular take center stage in the philosophy of language, or at least in the, the snippet of philosophy of language that we're particularly interested in here? I mean, I suppose some of this is historical accident. Maybe, maybe one thing is that it does look like there are lots of uh, difficult to sort out complications about language. And if you just start thinking about well, what does language do, you might think, well, maybe I should break the question down and think about what words do. And then if you start to think about a word like, say, and or a word like is, it's really difficult to see where to even get started. But if yeah. you start with something like the term London, you might think, OK, I, I kind of can at least gesture at the beginnings of a view of what what that piece of language does. It, it names the thing. It stands for the thing. Um, it's the kind of thing that I can use as roughly a placeholder for for this expanse and space where people live. Uh, maybe that's more obvious even still for, for your Serena Williams example. Uh, there's a person and this person's got effectively, um, you know, a, a label, a tag. I mean, I think that's that's not a, an especially humanistic way of putting the thought. But the idea is that, you know, you show up on the scene and your parents say, I'm going to name you such and such. And and now you've got this this thing that other people can use to talk about you even when you're not around. So I think that one thing that speaks in favor of thinking about names is just that they they look like a, 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 a an interesting point of entry into thinking about how language works and how it could be that this little squiggle on the page could possibly stand for something else. They look like a tractable case. And then the other reason this historical accident thought is that I think for various reasons, they, they've come, come to sit at the center of philosophical theorizing because they've got some kind of interesting features. Uh, names look like, as we'll, as we'll talk about in a little bit, I think, things that even though they're about a particular thing, they look to behave differently than another piece of language that looks to be about a particular thing namely a definite description. So I might say something like the chair in the corner, and I might name that chair, say, Henry. Um, it's a strange thing to do for a chair, but it, in both cases, it looks like I'm may, maybe superficially, it looks like I'm doing the same thing. And it turns out that actually names are, are interestingly, plausibly interestingly different than, than these descriptions. Yeah. So why, why don't we, you already basically uh, gave a rendition of, of what's sometimes called the million theory of proper names. Namely, the, the thought, the very natural thought, that a name is a bit like a label or a tag for something. 
a proper name, or rather put it, put it differently, if we want to give an account of the meaning of a proper name, all we have to do is point to the object or thing or person, whatever it might be, that it stands for, that is its bearer. And that's all there is, right? That's the end of the story. That's all there is to our theory of meaning of proper names. There's nothing else involved. Now, of course, the listener might think, uh, well, what else could there be, right? So why don't you uh, <laughs> tell us what Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, may, maybe maybe at this juncture, it's even, it's helpful to go right right into thinking about thoughts. Um, sure. As, as opposed to language. Uh, I mean, somehow or other, take the things that are really far away. I can think about, I can think about Los Angeles, California, and I can do that while I'm sitting in London. Somehow or other, I can train my mind on something that's really far away. And there are probably lots more models for thinking about how this, how this can work, but two philosophically really important ones have been uh, the descriptive theory and, and the direct reference theory. And according to the descriptive theory, what I'm doing when I'm thinking a thought like Los Angeles is in California is really I'm, I'm describing something. I'm training my mind on Los Angeles by bringing to mind things like being the largest city in California um, being a place known for the sunshine, being the city where the University of Los Angeles is is located. In effect, the description theory says I think about things by isolating them in terms of their properties. So I might think, for example, about Aristotle by thinking thinking about things like being the last great philosopher of antiquity or being the teacher of Alexander. And you can start thinking, okay, how so how how is it on this model that my mind gets to be latched on to something like Aristotle. Well, I bring to bear, I bring to mind uh, these properties. And Aristotle is the only one who has them. Aristotle is the one who indeed is the person who was the last great philosopher of antiquity. And maybe that's debatable, but you get the idea. Um, or he was the, he was the teacher of Alexander. So he answers to that description. And so by bringing this descriptive material to mind, and by it being the case that Alexander answers to that description, my mind now gets to be latched on to Alexander. So that's one sort of model of, of how our mind gets to sort of reach out to the world and think about things. Um, and I think that that model's got a lot going for it. I'm sure that we'll talk a little bit more about it. There, there are lots of, lots of reasons that, that people have found that view attractive. Um, but from people like Kripke, and, and I think although Kripke gets a huge amount of the credit, it's important also to remember that people like uh, Ruth Bark and Marcus and uh, David Kaplan and um, and Hillary Putnam and others helped play a role in in forcing us to think a little bit more carefully about is that the way that our mind always gets on to the outside world? And, and what they pointed out was that we might think about a view that's a little bit more sort of outside in. Um, I think that in a way that this this is to to put some words into Kripke's mouth, but in in naming a necessity, he's got a few different ideas that he's running at the same time. And I think one of the most influential ones was, as you gestured earlier, this causal theory of names, this idea that there are objects out there in the world that I or someone else makes causal contact with, and, and we, in effect, put a tag on that object. The object impinges itself upon our, our, our mental system, either, again, directly causally or, or perhaps in some indirect way. But I'm in a position to say that thing, that thing I'm going to call Los Angeles that thing we're going to call Aristotle. Uh, and rather than describing it, I'm in effect sort of putting a hook on it with a long string and then passing that string along to other people. And as long as they hear me say Aristotle, it's as if I pass the string on to them. And that string traces its way all the way back to the man himself 
And so rather than there being some uniquely identifying description, there's this causal chain that starts with somebody making causal contact with the object, putting a tag on it, and then passing along the string. And I think that's a that was a really exciting philosophical idea uh, when it when it came on the scene in the '60s and the '70s, and it's I think it's forced people to really think differently about the mind and about language. It's had a really big impact, um, and I think that in a in a way that maybe that helps answer helps build on the answer to your question why are names something that people pay a lot of attention to. Part of it is because I think that it's a it's a place in the philosophical landscape where a certain idea got turned on its head. Uh, and I think that that's had a really big impact on on how we think about thoughts, how we think about language. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. So let me recapitulate those two theories. And then let me ask a, a, actually a genuine question about them. If I if my question ends up getting too convoluted, we'll just we'll just get rid of it. But so on the one hand, we have the description, descriptive theory of names, the descriptivist account of names. And the idea there is that what makes it the case that a particular person, say the person Serena Williams, has the name uh, Serena Williams, is that uh, the name is really a kind of abbreviation for a bunch of descriptions that um, capture certain properties that Serena Williams has and that uniquely identify her. So being the most successful female tennis player of all time, being, I don't know, I think from, from Compton, California, you know, it's, it's as if you, you can imagine you have, a, you have a, a group of people and you point out properties of the person that you want to uniquely identify. And the more properties you add, ideally, the more you narrow down the possible candidates. So, right, you start out by saying, oh, I mean the person in the green sweater. And then you say, well, there are three people left in the green sweater. No, 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 the guy with the green sweater and the glasses. No, there's maybe two. And no, the green sweater and the, you know, whatever. And at some point you have, a uh, conjunction, perhaps, of properties which only the bearer of that name has, and so the idea. Yeah, is that that's is, the goal. That's that's the ideal. I think that um, this kind of theory, the thought behind this theory, has been developed in all kinds of different ways, and I think people have come to this kind of view has been developed in lots of different ways, uh, and I think people have come to appreciate that the chances that we're going to lay out a description that uniquely identifies the kind, the things that we think about. Is, is probably a little bit far-fetched, but idealized, that is, the, that, that's kind of the hope of the theory, um, that we might think of a name as an abbreviation for a definite description, where, where by being definite, it gets onto a unique individual. You know, the person who is the greatest tennis player of such and such time and, and is from Compton and is sponsored by Nike and so on and so forth. So the goal, the hope, is that we're getting uniquely identifying definite descriptions um, and then the thought is that, that names are shorthand for those descriptions. Um, but like I said, I think I think that if, if you sort of think about it for a few minutes, it's really difficult to come up with uniquely identifying definite descriptions for all the things that we name and think about and talk about. Right. Um, so so people have fiddled with the theory, but but you've got it right. That's the that's the idea. Right. But l let me ask you a, a question about that because it it seems maybe it's it's useful to separate three distinct questions that descriptivism might be a, an answer to. Right. So the first question might be. We want an account of how it is that a particular name comes to be the name of a given object. So in a certain sense, that's sort of a metaphysical question. In virtue of what is it the case that the name 
comes to be the name of Serena Williams or something, right? And one answer you might give is, well, it's it's the description that we have there does the reference fixing. It 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 establishes the connection between the name and the thing in the world that it is the name of. So that's one question. Another question is, what do I, if I'm going to be a competent user of the name in that language, what do I have to know? And again, you you might want to give a descriptivist answer there. You might say, well, really, if somebody asks you, do you know what the meaning of Serena Williams is? Well, you you should be able to produce some sort of description, maybe, right? So something like a definition of that. At least that's a that's a possible response you might give. You might worry that a lot of people competently use names in all sorts of situations where they might not be able to give certainly not a uniquely identifying description. That's the second question. The third question is the question of the semantic value of the linguistic expression. And so I guess to introduce that, I, I would I should say two words of explanation. So another really cool feature of language is this feature called compositionality. Right? So how is it that we are able to understand and produce a potential infinity of sentences seemingly effortlessly with even though we're obviously finite beings, right? So I can make up a sentence off the top of my head, something like 13 pink patriotic penguins took over my kitchen this morning. Right? There's probably a, a sentence that I would wager none of our listeners has, has yet heard. Nevertheless, you have no trouble at all understanding it. And the reason you have no trouble at all understanding it is because you can understand the meaning of the sentence as a whole, right? this linguistic complex that is the sentence, because you understand the meanings of the parts and because you have a sense of how those parts are put together in an orderly fashion in order to produce that sentence. Those, those two elements, knowing the meanings of the constituent parts of the sentence and knowing the mode of composition of the sentence enables you to understand the meaning of a whole, of the whole. And so, Hence comes this idea of semantic value, that is to say, what is it that a particular word contributes to produce the overall meaning of the sentence? Right? And so we can ask that in particular when it comes to proper names. When we're thinking about the meaning of a sentence such, such as Serena Williams is a tennis player, what is it exactly? What, what is it that the word Serena Williams contributes to the meaning of that sentence? And Again, the answer might be, well, perhaps it's the person itself. Maybe it's Serena Williams that somehow is the meaning and that's all there is to the meaning. Or perhaps we might say, no, 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 it's, it's actually some, some uh, description of the person in question that's being contributed, or perhaps it's something else altogether. So sorry, that was a bit long-winded, but I think just for my, to, to aid my own understanding, perhaps it's useful to separate those three and to ask ourselves, what the focus in our discussion today is what, what which of the three questions are, are uh, we're trying to answer yeah so let's maybe it's helpful for me too i think just to just sort of to to lay those out so the three the three things that the description theory of names tells us something interesting about it how it takes a stand on um first reference fixing in virtue of what does some name stand for this object rather than any other object Second, it tells us something about what it takes for us to be a competent user and understander of a name. Um, so we might compare, for example, a parrot who makes a noise and just says things like, you know, squawks, kripke. You think, well, that, 
the, the parrot the parrot can make the no the name noise, but the parrot doesn't understand the name. And then you might ask, well, what's the difference between somebody who does understand the name and doesn't? And the description theory is going to have the resources to tell us something. Right. Uh, and that's the, the person who under yeah. Go sorry, ahead, sorry. No, no, just to point out very quickly because we contrasted the description the descriptivist theory with the causal reference theory. This idea that what fixes, what makes it the case that a particular name is a name of a given object or person is that there's some kind of causal link between something like an initial baptism when the, the, the object or the person first got associated with the name and the situation of the person now using the name. Now, it seems to me that that is an answer to the metaphysical question, right? An answer to the question how it is that in virtue of what is it the case that a name is the name of the particular bearer, that it's the name of, but it wouldn't be presumably a plausible candidate f as an answer to the second question, the question of what semantic competence consists in, because nobody's expected to be able to follow through the perhaps circuitous uh, causal route that separates us, you know, random user of the word Napoleon or what have you, to, you know, Monsieur et Madame Bonaparte in, in course when he was being baptized. Yeah, and I think that I mean there. So, so you've given a a kind of problem if one were to try to use the causal theory uh, as as a as a theory of understanding a name, you might will run into the problem that you had. But we also look like we may run into the problem of the parrot again, which is the parrot seems to stand in a causal relation to that sound exactly. So, um, and, and yet doesn't doesn't seem nevertheless to understand the name. So it does. Yeah. So that's a good point. It doesn't. Uh, it, some aspects of these theories will cover some of these bases and not others. And one of the things that's actually really quite elegant about the descriptive theory is that it's got a ha it's got a handy way of saying something about both reference fixing and understanding. Um, and that that's you know that's not a small feat. That's it's nice if you can do if you can capture capture things like that in one go. That's that's a pretty good feature of theory. Yeah, I mean it's it's a question whether whether that really should count as a. As a bonus point, that's some kind of theoretical virtue, the fact that we have that kind of explanatory unity there. Okay. Are you still good on your drink? Yes. Um, well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll top it up if we're going to just take a second. Good. Well, there is a guy just out there drilling away. Yeah. I'll keep going with what I'm doing right now. Um, okay. Got myself topped up here. Yeah, okay. Um, so let's see. So we left off on, I, I wonder just for, for the hell of it, if I can take a, take a stab at the third thing. So you're talking about compositionality. Maybe maybe a way, a way to sort of get into the question, uh, an intuitive way of thinking about this is, if you know the meaning of a sentence, what kind of knowledge do you have? And one way that people have sometimes put this is that you're in a position to to divide the space of possibilities. Now, that's not a very intuitive way of putting it, but, but let me say a little bit more about what that consists in. Imagine that you've got sort of laid out before you all these all these scenarios, all these ways that a world could be. You know, maybe you sit around building these little model worlds out of Lego bricks. And, and now I ask you, is grass green? Is it true that grass is green? And you can go through each one of those little models and look at the model and think about that sentence, grass is green. You can say, yeah, this model is a model where grass is green. No, this model is not a model where grass is green. Yes, this one is. You can divide them right in half. The ones where grass is green and the ones where grass isn't green. That seems like at least one important element 
uh, in being someone who understands a sentence. You're in a position to divide space up into, yes, it's correct, or no, it's not correct. Um, and, and I think that that gives way to an attractive idea, which is that sentences have truth conditions. Mm -hmm. There's some conditions that are laid out that have to be met by a scenario in order for a sentence to be true. What and the world has ask, to be like for that sentence yeah, to be well, true. How, how do things have to be for the sentence to be true? But now I think when we get to this notion of compositionality and we start thinking about words contributing to complete sentences that have, have truth conditions that we as understanders can then use to divide up different ways things might be, you might say, well, what does is, what is a word like Aristotle do? Well, suppose you give me the sentence, Aristotle is a philosopher, and I've got all these little models that I've built, and in some of them I've made this guy Aristotle a veterinarian, and in some of them I've made him a, a physician, and some of them I've made him a, a mason, and in some of them I've made him a philosopher. I can go through all the scenarios and I can say Aristotle is a philosopher, yes or no. But why do I pay attention to that guy? Well, I pay attention to that guy because he's the one who's named Aristotle. And this so far is completely neutral on whether we're a descriptivist or a causalist. Somehow or other, we want that name to be linked up to that particular individual so that the name can contribute to the truth conditions. So that when I pass along a complete sentence to someone, someone can go, okay, I, I know what I have to check. I have to check that guy and see if he's got that property. I've got to check that stuff and see if it's green. So it sort of provides a little a little rule book for how to check scenarios for being correct or incorrect against the sentence. And what a name does, what a name contributes to that piece of knowledge is hopefully a, a, an entity, an object, and we can then ask about its properties. Right. That has something to do with what the meaning of the name is in our world. But we shouldn't get confused because it, it could, of course, be that in these other hypothetical scenarios that we are imagining, say ones where the person which we, as things stand, call Aristotle, became a mason. Maybe that's also a world where actually, you know, his name is Ezra and not Aristotle. That's right. And, um, but nevertheless, because of the conventions that we have here and the meaning that the word Aristotle has in, in for us, we can nevertheless use that word in order to refer to that person who, in that different state of affairs that we're imagining, just ended up having a different name. Good. So where do we go from here? Um, so let's see. So we've talked a little bit about descriptive theory. We've talked a little bit about uh, name. Could go, but here's kind of how I, I was seeing things flowing. Go for it. Um, we could we could just talk really quickly about naming and necessity because the backdrop of the puzzle about belief paper is basically something like naming and necessity is a really big deal, but I didn't say enough about attitude descriptions, uh, so I need to say something about that. So maybe the thing to do would be to talk a little bit about naming and necessity and why it is that people shied away from the descriptive theory. And then I think that the uh, puzzle about belief paper tempts one to return to the descriptive theory nevertheless. Right. Our, our talk of these um, possible alternative scenarios and so forth already lends itself well. So we've, we've already prepared the ground. Okay, good. So, yeah. So, I mean, as, as we've said, there's, there are lots of reasons that you might like the descriptive theory. It, it's got something to say about how a name stands for the thing it stands for. It's got something to say about understanding a name. It's got something to say about uh, the contribution to truth conditions. Maybe, so that's, maybe we should, that's we should all... admit, at least mention that, uh, sorry, that uh, Kripke attributes the theory to both Frege and Russell. Mm -hmm. We don't have to say much about whether how historically accurate yeah. that is or not. But <clears throat> just just uh, have our listeners know that there are luminaries associated with that theory. It's not something that we just sort of made up out of thin air. Yeah, that's right. So... 
So the descriptive theory certainly got a, a venerable history. Um, it's unclear exactly whether whether we should attribute it to Frege. He says things that are certainly suggestive in his theory of sense that I'm sure we'll come back to in, in some form or other. Seems seems to connect up with his description theory of names. And Russell, in his his famous discussion of definite descriptions, certainly takes the view that names are are these disguised or abbreviated definite descriptions. So you can find these views in the work of people like Frege and Russell. Um, and, and there are serious historical questions here about whether the view that Kripke is attacking is exactly the one that they held. But certainly what he's discussing in Naming a Necessity is is a view that's got intellectual roots in, in, Frege, in both Frege and Russell and is attractive to people like Quine and Carnap. And so it's certainly, it's nothing to sneeze at. It's a view that some, some people who thought long and hard about these matters thought had a lot going for it. And I think, I think they're right. It does have a lot going for it. Yeah, but, right. um, but one of the sort of shocking things about naming a necessity in 1970 is that when Kripke gave these lectures, he really threw a wrench in the works. He really threw a wrench in the works, not just of a theory of names, also in terms of a theory of, of the a priori and the necessary and the analytic. I mean, it really turned turned philosophy, as I think the, the actual back of the book jacket sometimes says, he turned philosophy on its ear. And I think that's right. Um, but in any event, focusing on names, I mean, one of the things that's really important in naming a necessity is this defense of what's sometimes called the Millian theory of names that can be uh, traced back, at least its intellectual roots come from from John Stuart Mill. And and I think it's such an intuitive view, you probably could find it in lots of other authors, both outside of the Western tradition and, and in the Western tradition. But um, in any event, what Kripke's defending in Naming a Necessity is this idea that the semantic value of a name simply is its bearer, that the meaning of the name is just its bearer. And he goes on to defend some of the, the other things that we talked about just a minute ago. He, he tries to flesh the view out in such a way that we can understand how, how could it be that a name stands for a thing if all that it does semantically, if all it does meaning-wise is pick out an object. And, and that gives him reason to try to develop this causal theory of names, this idea that here's the object before me, I'm going to, in effect, put a tag on it. Um, so these, these ideas are all sort of part and parcel of a grand discussion of thinking about, well, how do, how do names work? How does modality work? The, the title of the book is Naming and Necessity, and Necessity, of course, talks about how things must be, and Possibility talks about how things could be. Uh, so the book is tied up with these issues about how things must be, how things could be, and how we talk about things. And, and so a, a huge, hugely important aspect of the book is his discussion of names. And what he's trying to do is knock down this descriptive theory and defend the million theory. Right. So let's see. I mean, how, how, how far do we want to go? I mean, obviously, naming necessity, as you point out, is a, is a extremely important and extremely rich book. I mean, you can find arguments against the view that the mind is identical to the brain. You can find arguments to the effect that unicorns are impossible. You can find all kinds of fantastic and interesting sounding theses and arguments in there. But the main focus of the book and of the, uh, if I remember right, the first two lectures is the descriptivist theory of names and the types of arguments he advances. There's one that's usually called the, the modal argument because precisely it has to do with these issues of necessity and possibility and our use of proper names with respect to counterfactual scenarios. And then there's another um, argument, so-called epistemic argument sometimes, which has to do with a priori knowledge and a posteriori knowledge. I, I don't know. How, how far do you want to go into this? 
well, maybe I'll just say a few things for just a minute or two and then we'll push on. Okay. Uh, if that sounds good to you. Sure. Um, I mean, I think that the examples, the kinds of points that Kripke raises against the description theory, it's not that it's impossible to resist them, but there are, they're pretty powerful considerations against the description theory. Uh, and they're, they're considerations that the million theory does a lot better on. Um, so maybe it is worth just going through a couple of the examples. So remember that according to the descriptivist, a name is a disguised definite description. Um, and now it's a little bit hard to know where to start with some of these issues because, you know, we don't want to just intuition monger, but a lot of what we're doing here is thinking about the meanings of sentences. And we do know the meanings of sentences, I think, in some sense. I mean, we're, we're, we're pretty, pretty good with language. Uh, at least the language, the language or languages that we're fluent in are, are ones that we do have, even if tacitly, a great deal of knowledge about. And so we can ask, I think, questions like, well, just tell me, reflect on the sentence for a moment. Aristotle could have been a veterinarian. And you, you can think about it for a minute and think, yeah, why not? Why, I mean, I, I know he wasn't. He was, in fact, a philosopher. But if he had had a different upbringing, if he had uh, maybe put his interests elsewhere, he would have focused much, much more on the health, of, health and well-being of animals and maybe a good bit less on some of the, some of the other things that he delved into. Um, so you think, yeah, that seems right. Aristotle could have been other than a philosopher. Okay, so that seems like a truth. That's a data point. That's something that we need to explain or at least capture in a theory. So you say, okay, well, how does the description theory mesh with this thought? Well, the description theory says something like, the name Aristotle means the last great philosopher of antiquity. And maybe it means lots more than that. As we talked about before, we need to uniquely identify him. Um, but in any event, that seems like one of his great deeds. That's the kind of thing that you have to understand if you're going to know, know the name Aristotle, if you know the meaning of it. So Aristotle means, according to this theory, the last great philosopher of antiquity. So now I go back to that sentence and I think Aristotle could have been a veterinarian. And now I just substitute. I just swap out what the theory says the name means for the name. So I say the last great philosopher of antiquity could have been a veterinarian. And I mean, I think there is a, a reading of that sentence. There's a way of conceiving of that sentence where it still seems true. But unfortunately, there's also a reading that seems just manifestly contradictory. I mean, the last great philosopher of antiquity is not a philosopher. That doesn't sound, that sounds just downright false. That sounds like a, an inconsistent utterance. And the ins and outs of how this all works in modal contexts, I think, is is complicated, maybe too complicated for us to get all the way into the nitty gritty today. But the thought is something like we can we can think about refining our understanding of the meanings of various terms by thinking about how they behave in various contexts. And modal contexts are quite an interesting context. And they're one they're, they are a context that, according to Kripke, allows us to to draw a difference or put a wedge between describing and naming. It looks like it's perfectly possible that Aristotle have different properties, that he may not be a philosopher. But if the meaning of the name just is the, la the, great, the last great philosopher of antiquity, it seems like the last great philosopher of antiquity, by definition, is a philosopher. So we've made, it, we've made a kind of mistake here. We seem to have built into the guy himself some properties that he needn't have. So that, that's, that's one kind of powerful consideration that Kripke gives against the, the description theory, descriptive theory of names. He says, in modal context, we can show that names and descriptions behave differently. 
But if names just were disguised descriptions, we shouldn't see that difference. Right. So what we what we took to be a defining feature of the person, what we took to be that which connected the name with its bearer, right? For example, the 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 description, the last great great philosopher and of antiquity is, as things stand, a uniquely identifying description, but it's just an accidental one. That's and right. Kripke's Kripke's point is that the way in which we use proper names is that we refer to a person with the same name, as it were, regardless of how things turn out in these different scenarios. So even in possible situations in which Aristotle, the person we call Aristotle, turned out to be a veterinarian or a mason, all of those situations are such that the uniquely identifying descriptions that happen to be true in our world would not work, right? Because they're not true of the individual we're talking about. But nevertheless, it looks like our practices in using proper names are such that we still want to be able to pinpoint that individual. The individual is not tied to the uniquely identifying descriptions. Rather, in order to be able to talk about that person, we still use a kind of a, a tag-like linguistic item, which Kripke calls a rigid designator, rigid precisely because it identifies the same individual in all the possible states of affairs, provided that the individual exist in that state of affairs. Something yeah, like so that. maybe we, you know, we go back to this kind of idea of the little Lego worlds, uh, and we've got we've got strewn before us all of these different ways that that you could make a world. You think, okay, well here here's my best attempt at modeling the actual world. Here's this guy Aristotle, and and in this world, I st I hereby stipulate in this little model that he's he's a great philosopher, and he was the last of his of his kind of a certain sort. Say, so, okay, that's kind of how the real world is. Now I can build all these little models uh, where maybe I make that guy a veterinarian and another world where I make that guy a dictator, uh, not a philosopher. And you think, well, okay, yeah, I can consider those scenarios. And when I consider those scenarios, I'm still considering how things are with Aristotle. But if the name Aristotle just means the last great philosopher of antiquity, rather than going to those different scenarios and sort of and finding Aristotle and saying, how are things with him? What I should do is really just find whoever it is that is the last great philosopher of antiquity, it might turn out that it was Plato. Uh, and in another world, it might turn out that it was Parmenides or whatever. And, and now it seems like, although that's, that, that's a, an important thing to be able to do in thought and language, that's not what we're doing when we're using the name Aristotle. Right. We're picking out this very guy, regardless of how the scenario changes and asking how things are with him. The description theory seems to, seems to falter on this, on this way of thinking about how things could be. Good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that, let it be noted, is an empirical claim about how we use language. Right? It's, it's a claim that the theory according to which a proper name is simply an abbreviation for a particular definite description predicts that when we're imagining a situation where the person who matches the description, the last great philosopher of antiquity, is no longer Aristotle, but Plato or Parmenides, as you said. Well, the, the descriptivist theory predicts that we should say under those circumstances that, yeah, that's right. Aristotle now designates, in fact, Plato or designates whom we usually call Plato or Parmenides. Whereas Kripke, rightfully, according to my intuitions, at least, suggests that, no, that's, that's not how we use proper names. The theory that correctly matches our intuitions 
is the one that says, no, it's not like that. We still, we're, even, even when it's not the case, that even when we're imagining a situation where Aristotle is not the last great philosopher of antiquity, we're still, uh, we're still nevertheless talking about the person whom we name Aristotle, uh, no matter who else might fit that description in that world. So therefore, that theory can't be right. And, and that is backed up by our linguistic, by our more or less considered judgments of um, what sounds right to us, right? So that's, it's really an empirical question. Yeah, it's an empirical question. And, and there are lots of really interesting questions about what, this, what the empirical nature of that question consists in. As I said before, I think that somebody could balk and just say, well, this is just intuition mongering. But I don't really think that is what it is. Uh, we do have an awful lot of linguistic capability, which seems to be a display of linguistic knowledge. Uh, and now, how, how could that be? Or why is that? That's, that's another interesting philosophical, linguistic, cognitive science question that we, that we might try to embark on. But we do seem to have an awful lot of linguistic ability, capability and knowledge. Uh, and, and what we're in effect doing when we think about these examples is tapping into that knowledge. And I think in that way, it is an empirical question. We can ask lots and lots and lots of people, is a sentence true in this scenario? Is a sentence false in this scenario? And what you seem to get back when you do that is that millionism looks better than descriptivism, at least on this test. Right. Let's press on a little bit because we should probably get to um, yeah. puzzles of um, belief. Well, yeah. Puzzles belief. Yes. So perhaps we should start with Frege and well, in, in intentional context or the, the principle of trans of um, Sub substitution or something. Yeah, exactly. Substitution. <laughs> thing I Let's call it, we'll call it that instead of trying to do salva veritate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think, so we just talked about modal contexts and they're an interesting testing ground for, for whether names and descriptions can be equated with each other in some sense. But there's another really important kind of context that, comes up very clearly in the work of Frege, and uh, it's it's there in the work of the medievals, thinking about language as well. It's not a, and I think you can probably, you can find some discussions in Plato of this, but the idea is let's think about uh, attitude reports for a minute. Let's think about, for example, me saying, um, Stacy believes that Eric Blair was not an author, or Stacy believes that George Orwell was an author. Could, could it be true that Stacy believes one of those, uh, that she believes that George Orwell is an author without believing that Eric Blair is an author? And it seems like, yeah, somebody could believe that. Someone might not know that Eric Blair is George Orwell. In fact, I think a lot of people don't know that. Um, so, th so that's something that could be true of someone. They might believe that George Orwell is an author, but not believe that Eric Blair is an author. Okay, but how could that be? Eric Blair and George Orwell name the same person. Now, the description theory is in a pretty pretty nice spot here. The description theory can say, oh, well, I, I know what to say. George Orwell does pick out the very same individual as Eric Blair, but it does so by way of a different description. So perhaps George Orwell, that name, is a disguised description for something like the author of 1984. And Eric Blair is a disguised description for something like, and now I'm not going to know how to fill this in. Um, you know, the, the, the person born in, I suppose he was probably born in London, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know any of the, the relevant uh, <laughs> well, features not, about Eric. But we could anyway, so picture, you know, picture like a, a neighbor, a, a neighbor, Stacy might be a, a neighbor of Eric Blair who knew him well and they talked about gardening and all the rest of it, but yeah, she had no idea of his, 
She had no idea that uh, that that he was an author, that he was uh, that he was an essayist, journalist, and all the rest of it. Yeah, she thinks of him as the you know the kid that came and mowed the lawn in grade school, and so yeah, Eric Blair's the you know, the guy who cut the lawn in the summers or whatever. Yeah, that's um, what I think of him. Yeah. So in any event, I mean, we're, we, you know, we go, we go off and we do our work and we try to figure out what these descriptions are. But the, the idea for the description theory is that we associate different descriptions with these different names. So we've really got different names here. We've got one that starts with an E, the other that starts with a G, the other that's got, you know, such and such number of letters. These are different words. They are different names. And the description theorist says, so they're different and they're, they're also different semantically. They're also different cognitively they are associated with different descriptions. And so now we go back to the scenario and we say, well, how can it be that Stacy believes George Orwell is an author, but she doesn't believe that Eric Blair is an author? Well, it's because she's thinking one thought by utilizing in thought this description, the author of 1984. And in the other thought, she's utilizing a different description, um, the kid who cut the lawn. And and that's the kind of pair of thoughts somebody could have. They could say, yes, this person is an author, and no, that one's not. Now, it, they're, they're mistaken. Uh, as it happens, those descriptions pick out the very, very same person. And so if one sentence is true, the other has to be true, too. Or any sentence about Eric Blair that's true is going to be true of George Orwell as well, you might think. But when we embed it in a belief context, now all of a sudden we start getting some interesting features. Aha, they make different contributions to the overall meaning of the sentence even though they both pick out the same individual. And what the description theory does is it says, well, that's because there's more to a name than its bearer. There's all this descriptive material, and that's the kind of thing that can make the difference. And these attitude contexts are sensitive to that material in some way or other. And theorists have had lots of different ways of trying to explain how these reports about other people's thoughts and beliefs and mental lives could, could possibly be sensitive to that descriptive material. But at least the description theory has that material available to point to. The million theory looks like it just comes up short. The name Eric Blair is a tag for this individual. The name George Orwell is a tag for the very same individual. What are the meanings of these terms according to the million? Simply the guy himself. Now it starts looking like what we're doing is attributing to, to Stacy an outright contradiction in her beliefs. Uh, and that doesn't really seem quite right. It doesn't seem like somebody who doesn't know the identity of uh, that, that Orwell is Blair. A person's not sort of guilty of a contradiction the way someone is who says, I believe that grass is green and that grass is not green. That, that looks like a very different kind of um, rational failure to the person who thinks Eric Blair is not an author, but George Orwell is an author. That doesn't look like an outright contradiction, an outright flouting of rationality. Description theory looks to be in much better shape. It, in a case like this than the million theory. Great. Yeah, that's really helpful. So perhaps just to state the really obvious, right? I mean, you, you have sentences that are just about how things are, about the world, if you like. For example, that George Orwell is a writer, is an author. And the million theory does absolutely fine when it comes to that, because it just simply says there's nothing more to the meaning of the word George Orwell than the person that that name stands for. And so it fixes it fixes the referent of that name. It fixes it. It points out the person we're talking about. And then we can ask whether or not the property that we're ascribing to them really obtains. But really, it is the case that he's a writer or not. And then that sense is going to be true depending on whether or not that's the case. So far, so good. But then we have these attitude reports. And here, we're, no, we're not really talking about 
the world directly or how things are. We're talking about how someone takes things to be. So we're sort of one step removed. We're, we're sort of asking ourselves, how does someone represent the world to be? And what the million theory, at least at first glance, seems to struggle with is it seems to be unable to account for the fact that the person we're talking about whose attitudes we're reporting might have, as it were, found a different route from the name to its bearer, right? It might associate a different kind of description with the name. And so what the um, descriptivist theory is able to exploit and what we find in, in Frege's famous distinction between sense and reference is that there are, as you pointed out, really two components to an explanation of meaning. Right? One component is indeed its reference, the thing in the wor world that the, that the name stands for. That's where the two theories, as it were, are in, in agreement. But there's a further component for the, for the descriptivist or for the Fregean, and that is usually a description that tells us the way in which the object, the bearer of the name, is presented to us. And, and that's usually articulated by way of a description. So in our case, it might be the case that the way the person thinks about the individual named by George Orwell, it might be someone someone she reads about in the paper, this essayist and, 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 and person who travels widely and, and what have you. And then the way she thinks about the person that goes by the name, what is it, Eric Blair? Yeah. Is, you know, the kid who used to mow the lawn and so on and so forth. So she thinks about... She, she associates with those names very different descriptions, and it's not at all obvious that those descriptions actually pick out the same individuals. Unbeknownst to her, they really do, but we can account for the fact that she can make an honest mistake there without being irrational by bringing in that second layer of meaning that the descriptivist theory makes available to us. Namely, it accounts for the fact that she might think of the same, she might think of the person differently because she associates different descriptions with the two names. And so they can distinguish, as it were, the level of sentences as they talk directly about the world from the types of situations where we're talking about how someone takes the world to be, in our, in our case, how Stacy believes the world to be. Because there it's, it's relevant not just to think about what's true or not, it's, it's relevant to think about how she thinks about the things that we're talking about. And it, it looks like the million has a, has a tough time accounting for that, or at least so it, so it would appear. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that one certainly a very intuitive thought about these reports like, you know, John believes that P, Stacy hopes that Q. Um, it looks like what we're doing in part there is trying to talk about the minds of others. And clearly an important thing, the, uh, the, you know, one of the things that we really push on on a first year student in philosophy is that there's this really important distinction between how things seem and how things are. Um, things may not be as they seem. We may be undergoing illusions. We may be, we might be dreaming. Um, things can be different than the way we take them to be. But what's nice about these attitude reports is that they're an attempt. That they, they're the linguistic tools that we use to try to talk about how other people take things to be. And that might be at one remove from the way the world actually is. Um, the description theory gives us at least a toolkit that we can appeal to here where at least on first glance, the million theory looks like it runs into trouble in these cases because it, there's just nothing for us to play with when it comes to um, trying to make sense of these differences of, of, one per, of someone thinking of one entity or one individual in two different ways. That just doesn't seem, doesn't look like it's got the wherewithal to, to allow us to talk in that way. Good.
Good. So, as it were, we, we were at a situation where Kripke has almost um, all but destroyed the descriptivist theory of names and, and, and naming a necessity. But there is this niggling problem um, in, the, in, in the form of these attitude report situations, in these sorts of situations where we're talking about what Stacy believes, where uh, the descriptivist seems to do better than the million. And so what Kripke does now is present a puzzle that seems to show that these sorts of cases, cases that have to do with our reporting other people's mental states, attitudes, are, are just difficult, pose problems that are not specific to the assumptions underlying the million. That is to say, we can, we can generate problems in a very similar manner using fewer assumptions and in a way that also cause problem for descriptivists. So descriptivists aren't home uh, free with respect to that issue. Is that, is that? Yeah, I think that's close. Right I think that's close. Um, <laughs> I think that there's a kind of, there's a kind of subtlety in the way Kripke argues here that I think is one of the reasons that I think of this as one of the great papers in, in the analytic tradition. Um, I mean, we've got this huge thing that happens in 1970 when Kripke gives his lectures and people start thinking, yeah, millionism has really got a lot going for it. Uh, we've really got to rethink some things. Not everyone gets on the bandwagon, but an awful lot of people do. Uh, but nevertheless, a lot of the holdouts are pointing to this fact that these attitude descriptions look to refute millionism. It just looks like we can show that we have... Even if it doesn't show that descriptivism is true, it shows that millionism comes up short. Millionism seems to be what's generating the problem when we start looking at the kinds of puzzles that come from Frege and from Russell and from, from plenty of other people who, who are discussing the issue in their wake. We're talking about these, these attitude descriptions and these mental reports, and they say, you are not in a position as a million to be fine-grained enough to capture our mental lives, you're going to get yourself into puzzles and contradictions. And, and so what Kripke is setting out to do in this paper is in effect to say, you know, I don't quite know what to say about attitude reports. I don't really know just what the best theory is here that accounts for how it is that we talk about successfully the mental lives of others and in fact about ourselves. But I'm going to try to show you that millionism is not what's at fault here. You all think that it's it's got to be that millionism is screwed up. So maybe we should be tempted to go back to descriptivism. Maybe we should be te tempted to invent a new theory. But you got to ditch a millionism. And what Kripke wants to do in this paper is to say, actually, the kinds of things that you all are worried about, you can generate those worries without ever so much as mentioning the million theory. So whatever is causing the problem, it's not millionism. There's some other underlying issue that we haven't quite dug up yet. And you share the problem with me. And until we can figure, what, uh, figure out what that problem is, millionism is off the hook. Um, I mean, maybe an analogy here is to think about something like um, trying to figure out an allergy. You think I keep getting, I keep getting these hives. You think, okay, well, here's a thought. It might be that I have a milk allergy. Say so milk is to blame. Say, okay, well, let's take milk out of your diet. Take milk out of the diet. A couple weeks go by and boom, you get the rash again. And you think, okay, I haven't had milk in two weeks. It's not milk. Whatever is causing the rash, it's something different. It's not milk because I've taken milk out. Um, and of course, we've got to be really careful. We've got to make sure that there wasn't a little bit of milk in that chocolate. We've got to make sure there wasn't a little bit of milk in that coffee. Um, but once we isolate that it wasn't the milk 
you know, there, there was no milk and yet there were hives. Well, I know it's not the milk. And that's the kind of model that Kripke's kind of offering here. He's saying his, his, his gonna, own illustration yeah. involves naive set theory and a result in, top, in a hypothetical result in topology. So your, yours yeah, might be exactly slightly more accessible. User friendly. It's not the most <laughs> user friendly example that he gives, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think he's coming at this from a very mathematically minded stance, which is something like, look, we kind of know how this goes in in arguing in mathematics. Um, you, you might think that there's a certain kind of hypothesis that's getting us into trouble. But actually, we, you know, sometimes we can actually show that you can get yourself into trouble without that hypothesis. Uh, and that shows the hypothesis wasn't the wasn't the culprit, just as the, the sort of uh, at home lab experiment can show you that milk wasn't the culprit. And so what Kripke wants to do is say, let me just lay out for you the puzzles that you all think show that millionism is false. And I will just build for you the same puzzle. All the same features are puzzling. But we won't even mention millionism. We won't assume any of the kind of assumptions that seem to be underwriting millionism. And we'll still get the puzzle. And so you descriptivist, you share with me my puzzle of belief. And we're all puzzled together. And your view might have some good, some good features that help us get out of the puzzle. But don't mistake that for you thinking that my my view has been defeated, I think Kripke could say. Um, so that's, I think, kind of the beauty of this paper. I mean, it does lots of things that I think are really exciting and influential. But I mean, in some ways, Kripke's going through some of the same same things that had been talked about for you know, 70, 75, 80 years at this point. But he did it in such a way that it has a kind of elegance and has a kind of uh, argumentative structure that I think was really creative. And that it's a it's a really sophisticated way of trying to show that actually there's there's a much deeper puzzle at issue here than just this issue of the name stand for their bearers. There's there's something else going on with these attitude descriptions that's 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 puzzling. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly so. And I mean, there's there's also something quite generally intellectually virtuous about the way in which he reconstructs his opponent's arguments in a way that is much more rigorous and much more precise than they have usually formulated it in order to then pinpoint exactly the assumptions that these arguments turn on. And perhaps we should say a little bit something, I don't know if we want to go through it, through all the, through all the assumptions, but the, the principle that I was struggling with before the principle of substitution, as we, as we like to call it, well, it seems to be the assumption that seems to, that is thought to be associated directly with the million theory. And it's roughly speaking, the idea that if you take two proper names that stand for the same object, like in our example, Eric Blair and George Orwell, then when you replace one of those for the other in a sentence, the truth value of that sentence shouldn't change. In other words, if I take the sentence, George Orwell is a writer, that happens to be true. Now, if it really is the case that the meaning of a proper name is just the person or object that it stands for, then taking a name that stands for the same object, that is to say that has the same meaning according to this theory, shouldn't change anything about the way in which the truth value of that sentence is determined. That is to say, when I say Eric Blair is a writer, that still has to be true because the name Eric Blair has exactly the same meaning as the name George Orwell. So that's the principle of substitution. Whenever you have two names that stand for the same thing, you can always replace one for the other, and a sentence will not change in truth values. It was true before, it should be true after, and if it was false before, it should be false after. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, in, in effect, what 
what that argument that, that you're sort of gesturing at there, I mean, there's an argument in the offing here once you've got that principle on the table. It's something like the million theory seems to entail that names are intersubstitutable anywhere without changing the truth conditions of a sentence. Um, after all, the only thing they contribute to the meaning is, is the bearer, and they contribute the same bearer. So you should be able to swap them in and out. And so what Kripke does in the early part of the paper is say, let me rehearse for you how you might think you can argue against millionism by relying on the substitution principle. And how does that work? Well, if millionism entails the substitution principle and the substitution principle is false, well, then millionism just has to be false, too. Yep. Um, so so you can take take uh, you can take first first year logic with Florian at Birkbeck and you can learn exactly how to prove that. But it's easy to prove. It's a it's a quick, logical little construction. So so then the thought is something like, OK, there's this principle of substitution that seems to fail in attitude contexts. And so these contexts show us that millionism is false. Um, and, and like you say, Kripke does a really great job of laying this out very clearly. And I think that other theorists before him uh, were sensitive to this. But the paper does an especially elegant job of presenting this puzzle that relies on substitution to show that there's a problem with millionism. Um, and now what Kripke's next move will be is to say, I can generate the puzzle without that substitution principle. We can just drop that principle altogether and run the puzzling, the puzzling scenario. So, I mean, maybe it is. I think it's tough. It's tough in this kind of uh, medium to sort of go through an enumerated argument. Um, but it might be worth just sort of giving it a shot and seeing how we do. OK, let's try it. Yeah. So. So suppose we start out with an assumption like this. Jones is rational. That's just a stipulation. And now I say. Eric Blair is George Orwell. That's an assumption, too. It happens to be actually true. And now suppose Jones is ha perfectly happy to assent to George Orwell wrote 1984. He says, yep, that's true. And Jones also assents to Eric Blair did not write 1984. For whatever reason, he thinks Eric Blair is not, not a writer. So Jones is really um, Stacy's husband, and so he has the same... Yeah, that's right. So they live next door. They, yeah. they, they both together live next door to, um, Eric, to Blair. Eric Blair, who is George Orwell. Um, okay, so so jo Jones assents to this one sentence, George Orwell wrote 1984. He assents to this other sentence, Eric Blair did not write 1984. They think, okay, well, that's really good evidence that Jones believes that George Orwell wrote 1984. And it's really good evidence that Jones believes that Eric Blair did not write 1984. Okay, so now we've got those two, two attitude reports about Jones on the table. He believes Eric Blair wrote 1984. Sorry, he believes George Orwell wrote 1984. And he believes that Eric Blair did not write 1984. But now let's wheel in that substitution principle that says anywhere that you find the, the name, George Orwell, feel free to swap it for Eric Blair. They mean the same thing, so you should be able to swap it. Okay, I'll swap it. So now I have another utterance that I can, can lay out on the table. Jones believes that George Orwell did not write 1984 because all I've done is substitute Eric Blair for George Orwell. But now I have Jones believes George Orwell wrote 1984 and Jones believes that George Orwell did not write 1984. Now it looks like Jones is ascribed to believe something that's contradictory. He believes P and not P. Now here's an assumption that I think we should come back to in a little bit. But according to, to the puzzle as laid out by Kripke, anybody who believes a contradiction is irrational. Right. But we assumed at the outset that Jones was rational. So now it looks like we've got a contradiction. Jones is rational, a bunch of steps that look really hard to deny. Jones is irrational, contradiction. Something has got to go. We've got to give up some claim that we made. 
And the thought is um, up to, you know, naming a necessity and, and for many people uh, longer still, it, it's that substitution principle that caused all the trouble. This, that moment when you happily swapped out Eric Blair for George Orwell, that's when you got yourself into trouble. Those two terms are not swappable in that way. And if they're not swappable in that way, millionism has to be false because millionism entails that they're swappable. So that's kind of a way that, that that's the way that Kripke structures or re, reconfigures. That's not quite right. That's the way that Kripke lays out this, at this point, well-known argument against the simple theory of names. Um, and now he's going to go on to say, I'm going to run that same puzzle, but I won't use the substitution principle at all. Right. It's it's a bit, uh, just very briefly, but it's a bit reminiscent of interpret ph philosophies of interpretation that we find in Quine and in Davidson. And in fact, Kripke talks about that briefly at the end of his essay, because you, what both of those authors ask us to do when we're trying to figure out what someone else is saying, when we're trying to make sense of someone else, even in our own language, is to be charitable. Right? We want to interpret what they say in such a way as to not make them look stupid. Because chances are, if we come up with an interpretation that makes them look too stupid, it's probably that we misinterpreted them, misinterpreted them in some other way. In, in this case, if we come up with an interpretation that makes it the case that um, Jones blatantly contradicts himself, it's probably the case that he somehow uses the words that operative here in slightly different ways. Well, and if he uses the words in slightly different ways, it must be that there must be a distinction, a difference in meaning between the proper names, which nevertheless refer to the same thing. And so that seems to, end up, it, that seems to point to the million theory being uh, at the source of the problem here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if we go back right to where we started, there's this attractive idea that it's something like, you know, why do we care about these attitude reports so much? Well, we care about them because part of, part of what we want to do is understand what people are up to and why they're up to those things. So I, maybe I see you dash across the street and, and pop into, into the pub. And, and I think, well, what's, you know, what's Florian in such a hurry for? And then I learn that there's a part, there's a surprise party and you're running late. Um, you believe that you're late for the party. You don't want to spoil the surprise. Now I understand what you're up to. I, I can, you're, you become intelligible to me as, as somebody moving around in the world. I get what you're up to. Yep. Um, and, and a big part of getting what someone is up to is trying to make sense of them in such a way that they come out rational. Um, you know, there's no, it could, it could be that, you know, for all kinds of bizarre reasons, you're behaving the way you're behaving, but I'm pretty confident that, that you by and large are guided by something like a sensible plan to get yourself through the world. And so we've got this background assumption that plus or minus a bit, people are, are, are pretty reasonable and rational. And now against that backdrop, I try to interpret them. Well, what, what could this person be up to? And I learned something about what they believe and what they want. And now I can make sense of, of how that's consistent with their rationality. And I think you're exactly right that what Kripke seems to be bumping up against here is this idea that what we're trying to do is make sense of Jones or Stacy or whoever. Um, and, and we seem to just be following a perfectly good little book of rules of how to understand other people. Well, he said that he, you know, Jones said that Eric Blair is not an author. And he said that Orwell is an author. So, okay, I, I should take him at his word. Those seems to that, that seems to reflect what he believes. And I've got this principle, you can substitute names anywhere you find them, as long as they refer to the same thing. Um, naming a necessity was a, was a smash success, and uh, I think that's true, so I'll use the rule. And then all of a sudden, unfortunately, I wind up with a, what looks like a really bad interpretation of Jones. I end up interpreting him as believing outright contradictions. He believes P and not P. 
that doesn't seem right. That doesn't really, as we said earlier, that, that seems like maybe too strong of an indictment. It's that's not the same kind of thing that one does when they flat footedly say, you know, the earth is round and the earth is flat. That, that's not that's there are some people who we should interpret that way. Um, some people are deeply irrational or confused. But by and large, that's not how things go with people. And what what I think this puzzle sort of shows is if we're not careful, we're going to undermine our theory of attributing to other people mental states in a way that allows us to interpret them as rational creatures. Um, so millionism, as far as we've gotten gotten so far, millionism is in trouble. It leads to bad interpretations. Right. Good. So those uh, these um, belief report cases, then, given what we just said, seem to, if we, if we want to avoid attributing irrationality in an unwarranted fashion to, to the person we're trying to interpret— would seem would seem to tell against the principle of substitution, and if, as you said before, it is true that millionism that it's such that if millionism is true, the principle of substitution must be true. Then, reasoning in the other direction, it must be the case that if it's false, millionism must fall also. So that's right. Let, let, let's let, let's go into um, the example that then Kripke constructs in order to show that actually we run into similar problems, even if we leave the principles of substitution out of the picture altogether and hence leave millionism out of the picture altogether. Yeah, good. So so what Kripke does is he says, okay, think back to that puzzle about Jones. And if you write the if you write the argument out, you'll see that you rely at a crucial step on this print, this premise, um, substitute names where you find them. Now, let me see if I can run that puzzle uh, without mentioning it. So here's the way he does it. He says, let's assume that we've got a French speaker, and actually, let's do it. Let's do a German speaker because you can help me with the pronunciations. Um, so, what's a what's a good a good standard German name? Well, let's take Peter. Oh, I can't say that. How 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 about Hans? Okay, let's go with Hans. Okay, Hans. So let's assume Hans is rational. Uh, so just as we assume Jones is rational, let's assume Hans is rational. Um, okay, now we ask we ask Jones we ask Hans some questions and and Hans assents to and now you say you say in German London is pretty. London is tübsch. Okay, so so we say that we say that to Hans with a question mark and he says emphatically yes. Um, and now we say to Hans, um, Hans is London pretty? And we've got to we've got to say a little bit more about how things are with Hans to figure out what he's going to say about this. Here's what we have to imagine about Hans. Hans comes from Germany, but he now finds himself in England. And in Germany, he had a book written entirely in German that showed these beautiful pictures of Westminster and uh, Tower Bridge. Bloomsbury. And, and, and he thinks, he thinks, gosh, this is a really pretty place. This is what a lovely, what a lovely place. And so he says, he says, I point to you. And he says in German, London is tübsch. And, and he believes it. He really believes it uh, on the basis of the book that he's looking at. But for whatever reason, he finds himself uh, one day, bam, dropped in the middle of East London. And although East London is a very cool place, it, it's not an especially pretty place. And he learns English just by being around the other people in, in East London. Uh, he doesn't venture out. He doesn't go and see Westminster. He, he doesn't appreciate at all that he's in the place that he that he was reading about in this picture book, and so he he starts saying in English. He learns English just through through inundation. As <laughs> we, it were. we have a Alex, we have a problem here, which is that the word, uh, the the name London <laughs> in German too is, similar. Is, is 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 the same word. It's just pronounced differently. I mean, perhaps the pronunciation oh, that's actually, that's is enough. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's actually that's that's okay. 
Um, yeah, so maybe we, we not, should say not, we should say yeah. in, in the original Kripkean case, we're talking about a French person, and in France we have the advantage that the name of the city uh, is slightly different from the English name. So we have London. Do you, and should we, French, should we, we drop Londres. the Ger- should we should we drop the German bit and just do it as it is on the page? All right, <laughs> we can do that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's start that bit over. Um, so okay. Pierre. So here's 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 the important setup. Uh, we've got Pierre living in France, and and in a French picture book, he learns all about. Uh, you know, the greatest hits of London. And so he sees Tower Bridge and he sees, Bloom- sees Bloomsbury and he sees, sees Westminster. Uh, and he thinks he starts starts thinking the thought that London is pretty. But of course, the way he would put that is, and I, I don't speak French, but something like Londres est jolie. Yeah. Um, and and so, so off in France, Pierre would assent to the sentence Londres est jolie. Um, but Apologies to the imagine. French speakers. Yes, uh, that's the best I'm going to be able to do. Um, <laughs> you say let's, you say it. Londres est jolie. Yeah, bueno. Um, <laughs> okay, so Pierre's off in France, and he'll assent to the thing Florian just said. And for whatever reason, Pierre moves to this new place, um, and he's around these people speaking a different language. And he spends enough time around them that just through you know, interaction, he comes to learn English. And unbeknownst to him, he's in the very place that his picture book concerned. But he's five miles to the east, uh, off in East London. And it's not an especially pretty place. And so he, if you ask Pierre, you know, a year or two later after studying his picture book, Pierre, is London pretty? He says, no, this, you know, I'm in London. London is not pretty. So he does not happily agree to London is pretty in English. So, so that's the backdrop that Kripke wants us to imagine. And he says, okay, so, so let's assume that Pierre is rational. Moreover, we stipulated in the case that Pierre will, flexion, assent to Londres, Julie. And, and, and so he'll assent to that. And like, he will like also... My role has, has just come down to I, I point you talk. That's, that's, yeah, the, that's like the, correct, uh, the correct uh, p- power balance between uh, <laughs> colleagues. Okay, so so he assents to the French sentence, and then I say, you know, I say to him in English, uh, "London is not pretty," and he says, "Yeah, you're right. London is not pretty." That gives us the building blocks that we need. So what what Kripke says then is, "Okay, well, here's a really plausible principle. It's called the disquotation principle. If a normal English speaker, on reflection, sincerely assents to London is pretty or grass is green or whatever." then they believe that grass is green. They believe that London is pretty. We can just disquote. We can take a sentence that's in quotations. We can effectively pop the quotes off and just say that's what they believe. And so uh, if the person assents to quotes grass is green, we can say they believe that grass is green without the quotes. Exactly. So okay, so in, the, in the example, yeah. as, as you initially put it, you, you said that it was evidence for them believing it. And, that's, that's a, and that principle just encapsulates that very reasonable idea, right? If I, yeah, that's right. If, so if you so present the sentence it's to such me, such good evidence. Yeah. You present the sentence to me, you know, London is pretty, and, you, and I'm, I'm nodding at you, I, thumbs up, is like, yep, I'm all on board with regard to that sentence. Then that's pretty good evidence for, for the fact that I believe, that I actually believe that. Yeah, that's I'm, the case. I'm paying attention. I'm not trying to mislead you. I'm not lying. No, if we hold all that no kind lie. of stuff fixed. Uh, then if you if you say it or you smile and nod uh, emphatically, we say, OK, now I know what you believe. So he thinks that's a really reasonable principle, the disquotation principle. He says, OK, let me introduce another principle, the translation principle. It also is really reasonable. He says, if a sentence in one language expresses a truth in that language, then any translation of it into an into another language also expresses a truth. 
So basically the idea is if you've already got yourself a good translation manual, if the sentence London is pretty is true, I can translate with my translation manual into the French version, that sentence will be true also. I mean, after all, what a translation manual seems like it's doing is retaining meaning. And if you retain meaning, uh, if one sentence is true, the other one should be true too. So he thinks that these two principles are extraordinarily plausible. In fact, I think one thing that is sort of putting, putting words in his mouth, but I think it's not an unreasonable claim. In the argument we considered before, there was a very reasonable principle, the substitution principle. And now we say, forget about that principle. Let me offer a couple other principles that are equally as reasonable, the disquotation principle and the translation principle. And now Kripke's thought is, against the backdrop of the Pierre story, I'm just going to use disquotation and translation, and I'm going to generate the puzzle, and I'll skip out a substitution entirely. So let's see how that's supposed to go. Okay, so step one, as before, we assume that our person is rational. So Pierre is rational. Pierre, on reflection, assents to the French sentence. Uh, please, please again. Um, and, okay, so that's premise two. He, he assents to that. And so now we can say, but London is pretty, that sentence, is a translation of... André Jolie. So those are translations of one another. Um, so I'm going to be able to use my translation principle. Um, Pierre assented to a sentence. I'm going to be able to use my disquotation principle. So now I can draw some conclusions. Pierre, on reflection, assents to London is not pretty. That's after he moves to England. And I can conclude now, Pierre believes that London is pretty. That's because he assented to the French sentence. And I can use disquotation plus translation. Pierre believes that London is not pretty. I just used disquotation in English. And so now I've got myself right back into the kind of scenario that Jones was in. Pierre now believes that London is pretty, and Pierre believes that London is not pretty. That does seem to be a really reasonable um, interpretation of how Pierre takes the world to be on the basis of the things he said. He says this thing in, in French. He says this other thing in English. I use the translation and disquotation principles that look unassailable, and I land myself in this interpretation of Pierre, namely that he believes London is pretty and he believes London is not pretty. But if you believe like that, you believe a contradiction. And if you believe a contradiction, you're not rational. But I thought we assumed that Pierre was rational. So we're right back into the same kind of puzzle. We start assuming our agent is rational. We go through what look to be really good interpretive practices, and we land at a contradiction, namely that the person is not rational. Something's got to give. We've got to throw away something. And so now what Kripke's thinking is, well, what you wanted to throw away before was the substitution principle. But I've got some bad news for you. We didn't use the substitution principle. The only things that we used were disquotation and translation. But do you really want to throw one of those away? Because those look really plausible. Those, you might even think they're more plausible. I said before that they're as plausible as substitution. You might think those are even more plausible than substitution. They're not the kind of thing that we arrived at by doing a bunch of theory and naming a necessity. They're the kind of thing that we just arrived at by thinking about how translation works and how we move from the things people say to the things they believe. So, so I think one thought here is something like, I mean, here's the really big idea. The really important idea is substitution wasn't the problem after all. But I think another important idea here is, well, what are we going to give up? We don't want to give up disquotation. We don't want to give up translation. But we've generated a contradiction. So we've got a problem on our hands. And it's a problem that we all share together, be you descriptivist or be you million or, or, or whether you've got some other theory of proper names. This puzzle just doesn't seem to really be relying on a theory of proper names. Everybody up to 1979, plus or minus a bit, was kind of thinking, this is really about proper names. 
And maybe it is, you know, maybe that's what we, we, we come up with in the very uh, end of all theorizing. But Kripke's really called that assumption into question. It looks like there's something else going on. And, and, and until further notice, we know not what. Right. But do you think there's any mileage? Well, first of all, thank you. That was, that was really helpful and clear. But do you think there's any mileage to be gotten out of a kind of defensive attitude on behalf of the descriptivist? Not necessarily denying the conclusion that Kripke arrives at. You might very well take the argument as read, but still trying to point out and to salvage a key idea of descriptivism. Because after all, what's going on in the case of Pierre is still, we're still in a situation where an individual has two distinct proper names. In this particular situation, they're distinct because they belong to different languages, but they're still proper names and they refer to the same thing. And the individual is unaware of the fact that they refer to the same thing. And that same thing is is presented to the person in very different ways because the city of London is first presented to them uh, by way of all the typical postcardy tourist sites. And then later um, through the, the, the rough reality of, well, they're not particularly mean streets, but, but uh, the, his, his reality of living in East London. And so it nevertheless looks like the situation mirrors the cases that we discussed previously pretty closely. But nevertheless, through, the, through Kripke's trickery, we can't really bring the apparatus to bear on this particular case. Um, and we can't reconstruct the argument in the same way. But do you think that there's still, it, it still seems like the descriptivist approach gives us some kind of insight into what's going on and explains the irrationality, right? That he's in, uh, incapable of putting two and two together and to recognize that Londres, in fact, uh, refers to the same city as London does. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's really striking that, I mean, I think what the descriptivist, the, descript, the descriptivist theory, as we, as we said earlier, has got all sorts of different reasons in its favor. Um, but one of the things that it seems to capture is this pre-theoretical idea that there are just different ways that we can think about things. And we might think about one thing in two different ways. Uh, and we might get confused. That might lead us to certain moments of confusion where we, we fail to appreciate that we're thinking about the same thing twice over. And I think that it's very difficult to resist the temptation that what's going on in this puzzle has got to do something with that. There's something to do with the fact that Jones and Pierre are thinking about things in, they're thinking about the same thing in different ways. And that somehow or other, we've got to be able to utilize that thought. And, and you're right. I think that as Kripke lays the puzzle out, it's difficult to see exactly how to utilize that thought. Uh, I mean, one of the things, as we said just a moment ago, is that we're, we're left puzzled. I mean, Kripke himself finishes the paper in puzzlement. He's, he switches his, his example to a case of, of Peter and Paderewski, but uh, I mean, the, all the issues are the same. He says, does Peter believe or does he not believe that, that Paderewski has musical talent? Question mark. I mean, we just don't know what the right answer is. And what some people have, have tried to do, of course, is try to answer the question. And they've tried to utilize the thought that you were just... Um, just, just offering for us, which is something like, what's got? It's got to be something about the fact that Pierre's thinking about these things, one as London and one as Londres. How do we make use of that? And, and I mean, one of the really well-known and attractive approaches to answering Kripke's puzzle is to say, well, maybe what we need to do is refine this notion of what it takes to be rational or irrational. You're not irrational if you think of a thing that has the property F and of that thing that it doesn't have the property F. That, that might be a way of being irrational, but you can get yourself off the hook if you think of this thing in way one that it has property F 
and of this thing in way two that it doesn't have property yet. In some sense, you are thinking about the same thing, but you don't know that. You're thinking about it as a different thing. Um, and now you're applying these predicates to it, and it, it looks kind of contradictory from the God's eye perspective. But from your perspective, you, you know, you're, you're not on the hook for knowing that these are our names for the same thing. The descriptive theory at least gave us the ability to try to flesh that story out. But I think even, even before the description theory kicks in, it's just this very intuitive thought that we can think about things as a this or as a that. I can think about this guy as an author or as the kid next door. And that's got to be part of the theory many people have thought or, or part of the story. Uh, we get out of the puzzle, perhaps, by reconceiving our constraints on rationality. Rationality isn't about contradictory beliefs. It's about contradictory beliefs under the same guise or under the same mode of presentation. Right. Yeah, no, th those are very tempting topics to delve into further, but I'm, I'm very mindful of your time because you're about to head out and to meet a mutual friend of ours. So do you want to just leave it here or do you want to quick, quickly tell us what you think the right solution to all of this is? Or, um, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know what the right solution is exactly. I, I am very tempted by the thought that the puzzle as Kripke presents it puts too much weight on this idea that if you believe that P and you believe that not P, you're thereby irrational. Um, and that doesn't really seem right. It seems like rationale... True ascriptions of rationality are a complicated matter. Uh, co complicated matter. If Pierre comes to assent to a sentence on the basis of reasonable testimony, uh, evidence from his book, um, the fact that everyone around him agrees and he's got lots of good evidence that they're not lying to him, it would be very rational for him to to form a belief on that basis. And if he gets whisked off to London, unbeknownst to him, it's the same place as in the book. And people around him are being sincere and they're uttering this sentence. And on the basis of that sentence, he forms a belief that looks like, you know, why, why would we think that that's an irrational way of arriving at a belief? And fair enough, he's arrived at some logical level at a contradiction. But it's just unclear that we should then infer from that that Pierre himself is irrational. It seems like these descriptions of rationality depend on a lot more about how you arrive at your beliefs. And so I think that I think that perhaps the way to address this puzzle is to think a little bit more carefully about whether or not this assumption that Pierre is rational has really been flouted when we reach the point that he believes that P and he believes that not P. Is that really a way of being irrational? And I think there are lots and lots of different ways of trying to flesh that thought out. And I think that is more or less the mainstream approach to this puzzle at this point. Um, but I'm sort of inclined to try to approach it in the least theoretical way possible and just say, is it, is it obvious that when someone believes P and not P, in the way that Pierre does through this means and methods, that that's a, an instance of irrationality. And I'm inclined to say, no, it's not. And of course, we then need to fill in, fill in the details with some more specific theoretical mechanics. Um, but I think that's the, that's the right direction to go down, in my opinion. Right. So we ended up right in my wheelhouse, the sorts of things I like to think about. Um, but I guess we'll have to leave it with that tantalizing thought. But great. We well, it's really uh, very fun to talk about this. As I as I said earlier, I think this is one of the one of the great papers in the area. If you're interested in the philosophy of mind and the philosophy of language, this is absolutely, in my opinion, a must read. And I had this goal when I was a grad student that I would read this paper every day for uh, sorry once a year for the rest of my life. Um, and I've completely failed. I've completely failed at that. But it pays. It's the kind of paper that pays revisiting. It's it's a it's a beautiful piece of philosophical work. I think it tells you two thirds of everything you ever needed to know about names and attitude descriptions. Uh, so I highly recommend to your to your listeners that they go and give it a try, even though it's a difficult paper. Well, 
thanks so much for explaining it to us so clearly. And uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Okay, cool. That was good. <laughs>